Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Think back just a few weeks to the attempted insurrection that we all as a nation witnessed at the nation's capital. And think for a second about how many ways it was seen as a culmination of the really divisive rhetoric and hate that has been legitimized by the Trump administration over the last four years. There was an instant connection drawn between what we were witnessing with the smashing of windows and the assaulting of police officers and the really outrageous rhetoric that the president indulged in for almost the entire time he was in the White House. And then think about what happened after that attempted coup. Twitter permanently suspended Donald Trump's account. And after that, in the final days of Trump's time in office, Facebook and Snapchat and YouTube and Twitch and Reddit also limited Trump from engaging in activity on their respective platforms. So this move by big tech was celebrated by some people and criticized by others as being too little too late. Or worse, some people said it was a move that undermined one of our most fundamental tenets, the idea of the free exchange of ideas or free speech. That's what we want to talk about this hour. Free speech, the First Amendment, the exchange of ideas this double-edged sword of our nation's deep ties to the idea of freedom of speech and the danger that lurks when speech incites something more than just talk, when speech incites violence. How do you draw those lines? How do you distinguish between speech that is just speech and protected and speech that is related to violence, which I think we all agree shouldn't be protected? A little later in the hour, we're going to focus on the role of mainstream media and proliferating misinformation and far-right extremism. But first, I'm joined by somebody who argues that, quote, deplatforming President Trump showed that the First Amendment is broken, but not in the way his supporters think. Emily Bazelon is a staff writer at The New York Times Magazine, where she recently wrote a piece titled, Why is Big Tech Policing Speech? It's Because the Government isn't. Emily Bazelon, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so much for having me. So leading up to the 2020 election, social media giants had created some new rules around the posting and distribution of uh, misinformation, but they still ended up amplifying a lot of far-right content. What was the impetus for this clampdown, which I think is kind of the lead-up to what we saw on January 6th, or at least the context for where we wound up on that day, and and how effective was this move by big tech to try to get control of what people say and whether it's true? You know, in some ways, you can see this as a very long-term story that's been going on for years, where people who worry about a variety of kinds of abusive speech, like hate speech or bullying or harassment, have been pressuring the social media companies for a long time to do more to enforce the rules that they have against these kinds of speech, right? These are um, platforms that 
in a lot of ways, function like a public square in America, in the world, but they actually operate much more like private malls in that they're run by private owners and those people can make and enforce rules about the content that people are allowed to post. What you saw leading up to the November election was a kind of urgency on the parts of people who were worried about the spread of disinformation and lies relating to the election, on the part of civil rights advocates. And they really um, made the case to the CEO of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and the heads of Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, all these big companies, that their algorithms, the way the system they've built actually serves to amplify lies and and what we call hot speech, like incitement. And that's because lies can spread faster than the truth online because they're kind of exciting and titillating and people want to share them. And so gradually the kind of tech titans have become more... um, understanding of the view that they're very libertarian ideas about free speech, like we're going to be super hands-off, people should be able to say whatever they want, was actually having some really damaging effects. And so that was, I think, what really led up to their relatively mild, but, you know, different efforts before the election to do things like put labels on posts, including President Trump's posts that said things like, this claim is disputed. So so fast forward to... January 6th, and we see this really violent assault on the U.S. Capitol and in many ways driven by the misinformation that was spread after the election about the election results. And this time, big tech makes a pretty aggressive move against the president at the time, Donald Trump, and against a lot of his supporters. Talk about how we get from what they were doing during the campaign to the way they started reacting earlier this month. Well, you know, big companies often respond to public pressure and they can respond to shaming. And so I think what we saw after the election was President Trump using his social media platform, especially Twitter, to claim that the election was stolen, falsely claim that over and over and over again. And the little labels that Twitter was putting on the posts were not preventing those claims from going viral. Then you see the assault on the Capitol and People had warned beforehand and then found the receipts for this afterward that a lot of the planning for that protest, which turned into a riot, took place on social media, in public view, on Facebook, um, on a more conservative tending site called Parler. And so I think the big tech companies looked at that record, at the connection between the big lie about the stolen election and then the actual planning of um, some of the violence we saw at the Capitol. And they thought, wait a second, like we don't want to be responsible if there's more violence. So when we talk about the the kind of action that was taken against uh, the president Donald Trump at the at the time and and taken against some other folks as well the first thing we hear from their supporters is well this is a violation of their free speech and uh, some people say well this is a violation of the first amendment and we'll talk a little bit uh, about the difference between uh, private speech private spheres of speech and and government uh, spheres of speech and how Big tech sort of fits into that. But but let's start with the idea that this is a violation of 
uh, the, the the principles of of free speech and the free exchange of ideas, which the president's supporters have absolutely seized on and and are now saying that uh, the First Amendment is broken. You say the First Amendment is broken, but this is not the the, the example. Um, uh, the example doesn't mean what his supporters think it means. Yeah, well, let's start with what I think his supporters think it means. So technically speaking, there is no First Amendment right to free speech online because these platforms are owned by private companies. That's clear from American law. But when you think of the spirit of the American First Amendment, I totally understand what Trump supporters are getting at. And in fact, companies like Facebook and Twitter for a long time talked a lot about this idea that, you know, they wanted to intervene as little as possible, that there should be an unfettered debate, that people are always better off when there's more speech rather than less. Um, You know, we have this deeply held belief in America, much more than in a lot of other countries, that there's a marketplace of ideas and the good ideas are going to win out and truth is going to beat falsehood. And I think we have seen that marketplace fail, um, especially in the Capitol assault. Uh, But I think that is a deeply held principle and it makes Americans, for good reasons and then maybe in some exaggerated ways, very, very suspicious of any government role whatsoever in, um, in regulating social media. And, and so one of the things that, that pops into my mind uh, when, we, when we're talking about this and has popped into my mind several times over the last few weeks is when Mark Zuckerberg, who's the founder of Facebook, went to Capitol Hill and testified about his platform and uh, how it's used, how it's regulated, uh, and, and whether it should be more regulated. And um, uh, one of the things he said really struck me uh, when, when he testified. You know, he, he talked a lot about not really knowing what Facebook is yet, whether it's uh, a, a publisher, uh, whether it's a forum, uh, you know, whether it's a, a service that that we're so early in the in the life of social media and social media platforms that it's really hard to distinguish what it is and therefore then determine how it ought to be managed or or regulated and it seems to me that 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 lack of clarity uh, is is coming into focus right now as uh, as Twitter and Facebook and these other platforms are moving into a direction that would look a little more like publishers, uh, people who who have a, a platform and then decide what's okay in that space and what's not, um, and not just some sort of uh, marketplace or, or or forum. I mean, it it, it, it this seems like uh, an important development, I guess, in the life of social media and in determining what social media really is in our culture. Yes, I guess I would say that I think for a long time, Mark Zuckerberg and other CEOs have very much not wanted to be seen as publishers. Right. Publishers have legal liability when they publish defamation. That's how it goes. We have a federal law, um, Section 230 of the Federal Communications Decency Act, which grants immunity from most civil lawsuits to social media and internet service providers. And the theory behind that law, or at least the court's interpretation of it, 
um, is that these companies are not publishers. But I think that's like really hard to see how that's true anymore um, because the content they allow people to post, it's not, there is no sort of pure democratic way in which we um, as users of social media receive that speech. The companies in the algorithms choose what to recommend. They choose what we see in our feeds. They're making all kinds of editorial decisions. Right. Facebook has a ranking score for news organizations, which it turns on and off, but periodically it chooses to elevate sources that have a higher score for a, like being high quality Um which changes the you know makeup of its most um, viewed and most shared sites from hyperpartisan sites, um, including you know President Trump's own site, own Facebook feed, to like CNN. So they're making a lot of editorial decisions, and I think what you see when Zuckerberg testified before Congress, and what you see increasingly in the concessions social media companies are making is. They don't want to admit to being publishers for the legal reasons I was just talking about, but they are realizing that they have to take more responsibility and that, like it or not, they're accountable and that they're making all these rules without any real framework from the government. And that is a very odd position to be in, to be a kind of speech czar of the internet with no viable standards that you can point to that you can say, hey, this was arrived at through some democratic process. Mm. So, so is this... Perhaps the point where uh, we will get more government response to social media and these platforms because they're starting to behave like publishers. I mean, this was a very this was a very uh, sharp uh, move away from uh, their previous positions, in my opinion. I mean, uh, the, the idea of shutting down the president's account and, and shutting down some of these other uh, these other spaces because. They felt as though they were, you know, inciting inciting violence. You're right. That is behaving like a publisher. Does that start to answer the questions then about how the government ought to be responding to them? Well, that's a great question. It's sort of like the big looming question over um, speech online. And I think there are a few things that could happen here. So one is we're already seeing the companies do more self-regulation. So Facebook has this new oversight board where you can appeal a decision to take down content. It has 20 people from around the world on it. They're supposed to be independent. Their decisions are binding on the company. And after dithering for a while, Facebook handed over this decision about whether to continue suspending former President Trump to this oversight board. So that's one kind of, you know, self-regulation. Then there's a the question of whether the government should hold companies to the standards they set themselves and at least force them to give the data that would allow us to see what's actually happening. Like when they tell us, you know, there's much less disinformation now because we stopped amplifying it. Like, is that true? Hmm. Um, that's another kind of step. And then you could imagine a third step, and um, the European Commission is talking about this, where a government agency would actually be involved in helping to set the standards for the algorithm and how it works for content moderation. I want to be careful, though, that is not the same thing as having like a state department of content policing, which I think pretty much everybody agrees, like that is not the government's role. These are more, um, you know, a taking a step back, but having some kind of regulatory authority. And even that, what I just said, makes a lot of people really nervous, because when you have a tool like that and you hand it over to the government, like it depends who's in power, how you might feel about that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. Uh, she's also the Truman Capote Fellow for Creative Writing and Law at Yale Law School and the author of Charged. She recently wrote a piece titled, Why is Big Tech Policing Speech? Because the government isn't. Uh, we're talking about the moves by big tech to suspend the account of <coughs> former President uh, Donald Trump and lots of other far-right uh, users who uh, they say were using those platforms to incite violence in violation of the terms of service uh, of those platforms. If you'd like to join the conversation, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, call and let us know who you believe is responsible for policing the truth and reliable information on social media. Should it be the government? Should it be big tech, the owners of these platforms? Should it be individuals or the media? Uh, and, and what do you make of this idea of big tech moving in the way it did after January 6th and that uh, coup attempt at the state, at the U.S. Capitol? Uh, what do you think of the idea of them moving in and and shutting down lots of people's accounts because they contain misinformation or inciting speech. Uh, what would you be willing to forego uh, in terms of free speech and freedoms uh, if it meant making sure that the information out there on social media were more reliable or were less likely to incite Violence. Where do you draw these lines uh, in in a society where we cherish the idea of a free exchange of ideas? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, let's go to Brother Ray in Midtown. Welcome to the show. Yes. Hey. Good hey. morning. How are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm totally against um, impeding uh, anyone's ex expression. Was the president or was the pope, whoever? Uh, I believe that these companies, social media companies, are are too big. And they need there need to be some checks and balancing mm -hmm. because if it don't before the internet, these companies wouldn't exist. So I feel the FCC should step in and do some heavy handing in terms of regulating how can these companies shut down one's expression. I mean, if they're going to do that, then they act as a government entity. Yeah, so you know, they should be regulated as a government. Entity. So, so brother, right before I get uh, Emily Bazelon to, to to respond to you, I, I have a, a couple quick, quick questions. One. So newspapers do this all the time, right? If you, if you write something and send it to the newspaper for them to publish and it doesn't have uh, the truth in it, if it has lies in it, if it's a call to violence, they're not going to publish it. So, so what's the difference in your mind between that and what big tech is doing? Well, well because this is a platform where you're self-publishing. You're self-publishing your expression. You're self-publishing your work. So you're self-publishing uh, your expression, was so, print, media, what have you, mm -hmm. information. So you so feel like different. we own that. You feel like we own those platforms, uh, the, of the people. It's, it's, right. This is free country. Yeah. And, and the First Amendment is not broken. It's just that the First Amendment is being, I would say, uh, persecuted because the First Amendment is what it is. Yeah. Now, it's these media companies that's going to regulate uh, uh, what what is protected under the First Amendment. You know, that's, that's just how I feel about yeah. it. And, okay, like you say, 
uh, swearing on on the on uh, broadcasting news this, this is prohibited. Uh, swearing on a live news station is prohibited. Sure. Those things are prohibited because it's heavily regulated by the FCC, and social media should be regulated by the FCC as well. well uh, Brother Ray, I, I really appreciate the call uh, and the thoughts. Emily Bazelon respond to, to to his position there. I think there are a lot of people who feel that way that big tech should not be deciding whose voice uh, is out there and whose gets uh, gets shut down. Yes, I think that was a really good articulation of a feeling a lot of people do have. And one possible um, remedy would be to turn the platforms into public utilities where the First Amendment does apply mm. and you have a much more, um, a much less profit-driven <laughs> set of incentives for how the companies operate. Uh, there are politicians on both the left and the right who have called for that kind of idea. Uh, there's also the idea of breaking up companies like Facebook, because Facebook owns other big platforms, um, particularly WhatsApp and Instagram. So, you know, it's a really interesting question. Would we be better off with a just different model? Because effectively, this is the public square. And to have private ownership of it to think of it as a mall is just like wrong. It's just a bad analogy. Hmm. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Emily Bazlan. We're also going to add another voice to this conversation. Karen Atia, who's global opinions editor for The Washington Post, will join us to talk a little more about this subject. And we're going to hear more from you, Dale in Detroit, Heather in Ferndale. Peter in Detroit. We will get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day on 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for joining. We're talking this hour about the idea of big tech and social media, these new platforms uh, and methods of the exchange of ideas that really dominate uh, our culture right now and the moves that they have recently made to start shutting down people who they say are spreading misinformation or inciting violence. One of those people, uh, when this happened a few weeks ago, was the president of the United States, Donald Trump, who saw his accounts on several social media platforms ended uh, because they thought he was one of the insiders of the coup attempt at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Uh, uh, we've got Emily Bazelon with us. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and recently wrote a piece titled, Why is Big Tech Policing Speech? Because the government isn't. Uh, I also want to add another voice to the conversation now. Karen Atia is global opinions editor for The Washington Post, and she recently wrote a column titled, The Media Had a Role to Play in the Rise of Trump. It's Time to Hold Ourselves accountable. Karen, welcome to Detroit Today. Are you there, Karen? Hi, thanks oh. for having me. Yeah, there you are. <laughs> thanks for thanks for joining us. Okay, so you begin your piece by noting that uh, since the January 6th insurrection, federal and local officials have been working to strengthen Washington institutions against the threat of white supremacy. But 
despite those efforts, mainstream media remains vulnerable. Let's start there. What is the source of this vulnerability? Yeah, you know, the media, we are both, you know, a, a sector that is committed to public service, but, you know, we're also an industry, we're also a business. Um, and I think in many, many ways, um, Trump, particularly candidate Trump, was very adept at, you know, using the media, becoming a spectacle, right? Um, I think we forget a lot of times that Trump has really been in the media, in pop culture, in our sort of consciousness for decades. I mean, I grew up watching Trump on uh, TV, uh, you know, wrestling music videos. And so he came as a candidate already with this um, sort of, I would say, skill for drawing attention to himself, right? And so I think it was very, very difficult for the media, which, um, you know, we're all wanting readers, we're all wanting viewers, we're all wanting people to consume what we produce. It was very difficult to resist um, a a candidate, a, a figure that commanded so much attention, even if a lot of that attention was quite um, negative and, and politically toxic. So I think, um, you know, twofold, those those are the vulnerability, first of all, is um, it is very just difficult to resist someone who brings eyeballs and readers yeah. and, and all of that. And I think secondly, uh we were quite vulnerable. We were not used to, uh, well, this is not true. We, you know, politicians lie all the time. People in power lie all the time. But we were vulnerable to to all of this because of this, you know, I would argue a pretense of this sort of both sides-ism. Mm-hmm. So whatever the president and these figures would say, we would present it. Um, and it was very difficult to call a lot of the stuff out for what it was, which was outright lies. It was very, it took a long time to be able to use the L word, um, when it came to the president's uh, statement. So I think we are still vulnerable to that. Absolutely. Uh, talk about the role of uh, black and brown journalists covering Trump and his administration over the last four years. It was really different for us because uh, the things that were being said, the things that were being done were so stark and they were so clear. Uh, and, it, and it seemed as though, uh, in, in many cases, other journalists were struggling to, to, to identify that clarity and call things out uh, for for what they were now, all of a sudden, of course, because of what happened on January sixth, we're seeing uh, people find their voices. But black and brown journalists were there. It seems to me much earlier. Absolutely, um, and you know this is, and even before Trump launched his candidacy by you know descending down the elevator you know, in 2015. I mean, he was uh, one of the main drivers of the Obama birther conspiracy. His role with, you know, the, the accusing like the Central Park Five. I mean, a lot of these signs were there. But as a political candidate, I think for many of us, and and for me, um, if I'm speaking personally, uh, his remarks about Mexicans being rapists and uh, wanting to construct a border wall and 
the comments about refugees um, and and not allowing, wanting to not allow refugees into the country and, and restricting immigration, all of those were to many of us and to me explicitly xenophobic, explicitly racist, and explicitly um, a, a an appeal to a white supremacist uh, ideology, and it wasn't. It wasn't in theory. It wasn't, you know, we weren't, it wasn't hyperbole. I mean, white supremacist groups literally were cheering, right, <laughs> that Donald Trump was candidate. So it was quite um, sad, tragic to see that many black and brown journalists at the time were raising the alarms, were saying that this is uh, an overt, uh, a candidate is running on overt racism, and yet, there was such pushback. There was even denial that Trump could even become the leader of the Republican Party. And I think what a lot of black and brown people in this country understand is we understand the depths of the racism in this country in a way that I think many of our white colleagues and peers um, cannot or, or will not see, right? We were supposed to be in a post-racial society, right? Because of <laughs> Obama's uh, election. And... Um, now, as we're sitting here, we're realizing that this, this, these forces um, were one of the main drivers for for Trump to become president. So, I think now, it, you know, it, it gives many of us who are black and, and brown journalists no pleasure to say that we were right because what we we're seeing is the very thing that we feared all along, which was that this rhetoric would create a, an environment in this country where people would lose their lives and blood would be spilled. And unfortunately, um, already we've seen hate crimes even going up during the last several years. The El Paso shooter, you know, said that he what, he alluded to Trump's rhetoric in, in his manifestos. Blood is being spilled, and we saw that very clearly on January 6th mm. in Washington. Mm. Uh, Emily Basley, I know you have to leave us soon, but but I want to get you to weigh in on this question of how mainstream media have dealt with Trump and his rhetoric and the inciting uh, or or sympathetic uh, things that he said for for people who have white supremacist uh, tendencies. And and I wonder if you think if mainstream media had handled this differently, would it have played out differently in social media? In other words, would social media uh, and big tech have taken different cues um, from a from a different mainstream media that that treated this stuff uh, in a different manner? Yes, I think there's absolutely a relationship between mainstream media and social media. And I'm really glad that you brought Karen into the conversation because I was thinking earlier that, you know, we were talking a lot about deplatforming and social media, which is an important topic, but I feel like it's always crucial to see the relationship um, because it's not just social media. Um, Karen, when she was writing about this topic this week, used this great phrase. Um, she talked about, I think, the rusty armor of both sidesism mm-hmm. in the media. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'm totally quoting you correctly, Karen, <laughs> but I loved that because I think that gets at this like really essential problem that the media was very, very slow to realize what Trump was really doing in the ways he was talking about race in the what was really feeding 
the the div- divisiveness in his rhetoric. Um, so anyway, yes, I think there is clearly a relationship there, and you can see it because we can see which kinds of media posts go viral on sites like Facebook. Um, and it's often hyper-partisan ones that have less authority and are more engaged in that rhetoric. Mm. But Karen's right that we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook in the mainstream media either. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another quick break. Uh, Emily Bazelon, staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. I know we've got to let you go. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, and when we come back, we're going to keep Karen Atia uh, and continue to talk about uh, big tech and the role of social media uh, in in deciding what uh, speech we're going to have, what speech we're not going to have, who has free speech and who doesn't. Uh, we will also continue to hear from you, Marilyn and Oak Park, Heather and Ferndale, Peter in Detroit. We'll get to your calls if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about free speech and the boundaries of free speech in a world that is defined in many ways by social media and these big tech platforms like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We have seen them take a more aggressive stance with regard to some of the things that go on on their platforms after the January 6th white supremacist attack on the U.S. Capitol. But where do we draw the lines? And Who should be drawing those lines? Is it up to big tech to decide which speech should be allowed or should the government be playing uh, a bigger role in that decision making? As always, uh, we want to hear from you about what you think about uh, banning Donald Trump from platforms like Twitter when he was in the last days of his presidency uh, and also who you think should be drawing the lines. How should we be treating social media, which is a really new space still in in terms of the way we communicate with each other and exchange ideas uh, in this country. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll try to include them in the conversation. We've got Karen Atia, who is the Global Opinions Editor for The Washington Post with us. She recently wrote a column titled, The media had a role to play in the rise of Trump. It's time to hold ourselves accountable. Uh, Let's go to Marilyn in Oak Park. Marilyn, welcome to the show. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, I'm going to divert a little bit from technology just for two points. Uh, Just a reminder to us all, every phone call that comes into this radio program is screened, and every caller who gets on the air can be cut off at any time Mm -hmm. if needed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a good setup. Uh, Number two, the First Amendment. uh, Interpreting the First Amendment of the United States Constitution is a lot like interpreting the Bible. You can make it say whatever you want. (laughs) That's it. Uh, Marilyn, I I appreciate the call and and the thoughts. Uh, Karen Atiyah, you know, I spent uh, a good deal of my career in... Newspapers, uh, a good 
deal of the time I spent in newspapers was in the opinion section of of, of the newspaper. Uh, and and Maryland's right, you know, uh, there, there are all kinds of things that we wouldn't print. There were all kinds of guardrails we had up for truth and and misinformation. Um, social media has operated a little differently than that uh, for most of its life. Now it seems to be moving uh, in that direction. I know that, that, that in your piece you're writing about mainstream media and, and the way it did not do uh, its job during the Trump administration. But I wonder uh, what you make of the comparison between uh, mainstream media and social media when it comes to this idea of defining truth. Mm. Oh, such a target rich. I actually, um, I mean, to even to even begin to get at this, uh, Marilyn's point is so is resonating with me about about even phoning callers to, to radio. And actually, I started out um, being very interested. I actually spent uh, a year in Ghana researching phone in radio shows and this exact mm. Uh, thing I was examining how radio stations were screening callers that um, sometimes would come on air and say very inflammatory things, and in some parts of the country, it actually led to violence, right? And so this is back in 2008, um, and it's so interesting to see how you know from a, a radio show where you have callers to social media, a lot of the very same basic forces are at play. You have a, um, you have a platform, you have airwaves that, you know, you're, you recognize that it's, it can be used for so much good, um, especially to give voice to uh, viewpoints and platforms or, 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 and, and perspectives that don't normally get mainstream coverage. But again, the problem and the problems I say that plagued those radio stations in Ghana, and I would say plague social media to an extent, and I think plague mainstream uh, TV, print media as well, is that, um, again, there is uh, a need to fill airtime, uh, column spaces, Mm. and there's a need to make your offerings to people interesting and entertaining. And I think that that's where there's a lot of struggle uh, that happens, but it it is entirely true. I think that it is entirely true that um, all of these platforms uh, have the ability to say, you know what? No, that's, that's not contributing to a healthy discussion. It's not contributing to a healthy uh, national conversation, um, certain viewpoints. Um, and also, uh, also just liability, frankly. Um, and so I think what social media is, is doing, and if we're thinking, I'm thinking of Twitter, for instance, um, where Twitter and Facebook were controversial content and lies and mistruths, then frankly, like anger and outrage are profitable. It's retweeted, it's shared so many times, it, it ends up in your algorithm, um, TV, you get, you know, pundits on that are saying outrageous things and then those clips go viral leading, leading to clicks and, and views and advertising dollars for uh, these platforms. So all of these forces, it is quite, again, difficult to, uh, you know, both, uh, 
having the need to fill space, right? Yeah. Um, on your programming, on your platform. But then, yeah, we all have the power to, to do what we're supposed to do to contribute to a healthy conversation. And I think that's what social media has been. I mean, it's taken an insurrection, <laughs> but <laughs> that's what social media is finally um, is saying, uh, that they're saying, enough, we want a uh, healthier conversation. How long that lasts is going to be another question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. So let's go to Jared in Detroit. Jared, what's on your mind? You there, Jared? Yes, Stephen. Yeah, Thank you so much. Yeah. yeah. So um, I really uh, enjoy the conversation that you guys have been having today. And I think that, you know, philosophically, this comes down to the paradox of intolerance. You know, the only thing that a tolerant society can afford or must, in fact, be intolerant of is intolerance itself. Hmm. Otherwise, um, dedicated minorities of people that don't share the same kind of democratic views and values that we hold have no problem using violence, coercion, or the threat of violence to basically put an end to the tolerant society itself. So I, I, I think that's a that's a really important idea, Jared. Talk about how you think then that should be playing out in this in this instance. So do you think that it's intolerant of Twitter or Facebook to shut down the account of Donald Trump? Or do you think that um, uh, that it's that it's intolerant, for instance, to allow misinformation and uh, disinformation to spread uh, on your on your own on your own platform, even if it's if it's private? I guess I'm trying to figure out where you come down on the issue. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I think that Donald Trump and the folks like him have had ample time to prove that they have the best intentions of the American public at heart and have just demonstrated over and over again that they really only have their own personal power at interest. Hmm. Um, I think that it comes down to, you know, uh, the parallel of of yelling fire in a crowded theater, right? You know, we have free speech, but there's lines in our society that really shouldn't be crossed in order to maintain our civil democracy. And when people threaten the very foundations of our democracy, like the peaceful transition of power between administrations, then it becomes an issue past free speech, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jared, I really appreciate the call and, and the thoughts. Uh, uh, Karen Atia, I wonder if, if you can talk about, uh, and you've hinted at this a couple times already, uh, what you think we've learned in the last four years about how to do this differently. In other words, as we get into the Biden administration, uh, there's an, uh, an obvious change. There's going to be an absence of the kind of rhetoric, I think, that, that we saw pretty regularly coming from the White House but we we still have uh, all of these issues swirling around, and and of course the attack on the Capitol was not just about the people who were there. It's about I think uh, a, a movement in this country that's really gaining strength. So uh, mainstream media, social media, uh, do you think we've learned enough from what's happened 
to perform, you know, fundamentally different, uh, differently in in the next four years. <laughs> My uh, short um, and perhaps uh, super non-charitable answer to your question about <laughs> whether we've learned and we're ready is. Well, maybe I'll splice it between two. I would say both no and like way too early to tell. Mm, mm. Um, I think that even, you know, the fact that you and I, Stephen, are having this conversation is, is I would hope, you know, a, a step, you know, in that reflection process uh, for us as an industry. Um, and not just for, for us, but also for, for readers and, and viewers and listeners, um, you know, to, to demand better. <laughs> Of, of what we do, because ultimately we're supposed to be uh, serving them. Um, and I, I think uh, going back to, to this idea, not just Trump, but particularly, and we're, we're particularly talking about elected officials in this conversation, I know. Um, I think here's, here's the thing about this issue with, with free speech and censorship. Donald Trump was the president of the United States. Hmm. Um, for him to be shut off on Twitter is not silencing. He's still, at least, uh, you know, at least for the remaining few days, he still had the entire apparatus of the United States uh, White House. He still, you know, anything he still said and did would be carried sure. by networks, albeit, you know, uh, probably within context and a little more carefully as compared to four or five years ago, I would argue. But, um, you know, for particularly for, you know, GOP lawmakers who cry cancel culture, um, who often are hopping from TV network to TV network calling cancel culture. And it's like, well, if you're so canceled, then <laughs> Why are you on television? Like, right. Yeah, right. Like and you, you still have your, you know, press secretaries and you still have all the levers of getting your message out. Right. Um, and I think I think what should be important um, about this moment. And one thing also I, I'd want to say before I forget is that this idea of, of deplatforming Trump and other officials is not super new. I mean, even Kamala Harris mm -hmm. called for it um, in uh, during her campaign. And at the time, it seemed so uh, out there for her to even suggest it. And mm -hmm. now here we are, right? Again, mm -hmm. it took an insurrection an attempt to basically overthrow the democratic process. Perhaps it didn't need to get this bad, but I guess that's what I would hope perhaps for the future, that it shouldn't have to get this bad in order for, um, for social media, even for media, any platforms that have an incredible amount of power, which we do. The media has an incredible amount of power, Facebook, Twitter, um, other platforms have an incredible amount of power, and I think with power comes responsibility. And I feel like that is where we're kind of getting our wires crossed and signals scrambled. What is our responsibility as an industry to not just being stenographers, not just taking notes on what somebody said, mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not it's a lie, but what is our responsibility to the truth? And what is our responsibility to having healthy conversations? And how is our coverage going to contribute to healthy conversations and or at the very least to not do harm? Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's where we're slipping. Yeah, I think that's one of the the, the 
real debates that needs to take place in newsrooms is, again, how do you do that? And how do you make sure that, for instance, um, you know, uh, you aren't doing harm or you aren't spreading information that, that, that does harm? It's a question that I don't think gets asked enough uh, in mm. newsrooms. Uh, but we are starting to see, I think, right now, uh, that that is it, it's being asked a little more. It's being talked about a little more. And the right idea of, right, I mean, it's this just happened. And so the question yeah. is six months from now, um, you know, exactly. what does it look well, like? Well, I would say, Stephen, I, again, I would say there there are, you know, people, particularly, again, black and brown journalists who did speak out about the harm, sure. yeah. you know, and about the, you know, the risks of platforming white supremacists because they had cool haircuts and nice clothes and, uh, spoke well, but then would still go on air and rank the races by intelligence. You know what right. I mean? Like, yeah. there were so many of us who were like, this is dangerous. Stop doing this. Right? And largely, we would get met with, well, but we need to hear every side. Right? And what we were seeing, you know, was a normalization and a legitimization and be, of of these figures of, I mean, frankly, you know, making white supremacists palatable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was harmful. The problem is we weren't listened to, you know? Um, And now I would hope, I think one huge part of making things better is that journalists who have, you know, the knowledge of how racism operates, how how those who have been at the, the receiving end of it, right? Um, and those of us who, in many ways, understand whiteness in America, sometimes better than white folks understand whiteness mm-hmm. in America, that we will be able to add, to be able to make those coverage calls, coverage decisions, to be able to say no, yeah. uh, right? To be able to say yes to certain better healthier forms of, of coverage um, and call out lies when we can. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I would hope at least that that is, that is, that is a necessary um, part of the solution um, for sure. But it's going to be a, a bit of an uphill battle. And I worry that, you know, with <laughs> Biden and if things return to some sort of normal, that we may be complacent again. We may slip, yeah. Okay, Karen Atia, Global Opinions Editor for The Washington Post. Really great to have you here with us on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Stephen, thank you so much. It's going to do it for us this week. We'll be back on Monday and hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week.